Hello everyone and welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I'll be your host for this episode. Today we will head back down under but visit the South Island of New Zealand as we discuss a gruesome murder and its effect on the laws of the island country. But before we get into the episode let's quick cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me on X and Instagram at true underscore blue underscore crime. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In December of 1809, an attack on the British ship Boyd occurred in northern New Zealand. The local tribe of Maori, indigenous islanders who had lived on the two large islands that make up the Pacific Ocean country, were upset about their chief's treatment during a voyage between New Zealand and Australia earlier that year. The chief had been accused of committing a theft on the voyage and was convicted and sentenced by the captain of the ship. His punishment included being whipped by a cat of nine tails, a harsh, painful, and humiliating experience, and his tribe, already upset about a wave of disease another European ship had brought to their settlement, struck out against the unsuspecting Boyd when it harbored in the waters outside the village. A few passengers on the ship had managed to hide during the attack and witnessed the brutal nighttime raid that left around 70 people dead. Survivors described acts of cannibalism by the tribe members, and the story of the attack resulted in several retaliatory strikes against the Maori people in the years that followed. Eventually, during the latter part of the 19th century, large settlements were built by Europeans on both sides of the islands of New Zealand, and the Western world learned of the beauty and wonder of the country. Peter Jackson chose to use parts of New Zealand as a setting for the fictional world from The Lord of the Rings, and many people fell in love with the natural beauty of the country without ever stepping foot in it. New Zealand has often been named one of the safest countries in the world because of their low crime rate, but even the safest places in the world can harbor dangerous people, and in 2008, just shy of 200 years after the Boyd Massacre, a crime against humanity would shock the quiet country. This is the story of the murder of Sophie Elliott. Sophie Kate Elliott was born on June 11, 1985 in New Zealand. The young woman was described as extremely intelligent and filled with life and purpose. On January 9, 2008, she was home with her parents in Dunedin, New Zealand. Sophie was packing up items for an impending move to Wellington, where she was all set to start a new job. Her mother answered a knock on the door and was met by Sophie's ex-boyfriend, Clayton Weatherston. The couple had dated for six months, but Sophie had recently ended the relationship due to a violent and abusive outburst from Clayton. Clayton told Sophie's mother, Leslie, he had a parting gift to give to Sophie, and he was allowed into the house, and he made his way up to Sophie's bedroom. It wasn't long before Leslie heard a commotion, and then he screamed from the bedroom. She stated she ran up the stairs and could hear a thumping sound inside the bedroom, and the door was locked. Leslie feared her daughter was being sexually assaulted by Clayton, and she tried to break down the door. She was eventually successful at gaining entry and found Clayton straddling Sophie's legs and methodically and rhythmically stabbing her obviously deceased daughter in the chest with a knife. Law enforcement were called to the scene and took Clayton into custody. He admitted to stabbing Sophie and killing her. 
The case appeared to be a rather open and shut homicide, but before the trial, Clayton's lawyers indicated they were going to try and get the crime reduced to manslaughter using a law introduced in 1961 that was meant to protect victims of abuse. But before we dive into the trial, let's look at the particulars of both victim and the suspect and how their past and relationship contributed to Clayton's horrific actions. So this is a case, it's not so much about the crime itself. I mean, we will break that down as we talk about Clayton's defenses during the trial and some other things, but this is more about how even the most obvious of crimes can be somewhat difficult to prosecute just because of different legal uh, situations. Now, this case is actually going to change the legal landscape in New Zealand and that's one of the reasons I want to talk about it. And the other reason is there's a lot of psychological aspects to this crime that we don't normally get to talk about. So the crime itself is it's definitely it's horrendous and it's a terrible crime, but that's not really the focus of the episode. We want to talk about why this crime occurred and the defense that was used against the crime. Because oftentimes true crime is all about the how. People want to know the nitty gritty details of how a crime occurred. And then oftentimes that's, it also involves of who could have committed the crime. If there's multiple suspects, if there is multiple motives towards the crime, if it's a, a long investigation with twists and turns, sometimes that's what true crime is all about. But in this case, it's not going to be a whodunit. It's going to be a more of a why was it done and a look at the deep dive that was taken into the crime as a result of what Clayton would bring up at trial. So like I said, we're going to talk a little bit about Clayton's past here and then we'll discuss the case in a little more detail. Clayton Weatherston was born on January 9th, 1976 in New Zealand. He was raised by a well-known family in a suburb outside of Dunedin. He was known to be an extremely intelligent child with educational prowess years ahead of his peers, and he also enjoyed playing sports. But behind the high IQ and athletic abilities, there was a dark side that some classmates remembered when they were asked about Clayton. One former classmate referred to him as a, quote, brainy little prick, end quote, and he came across as an extremely egotistical and narcissistic person. Clayton struggled with bedwetting as a child and was diagnosed with failing eyesight. One doctor told him the condition was degenerative, and by the time he was an adult, he wouldn't be able to see a few feet in front of him without glasses. As a result, he had to wear heavy prescription glasses as a child, and was said to have received a lot of teasing from his peers as a result. Most notably, his reaction to these incidents were indicative of future events in his life. He could tease other kids, but if anyone teased him, he would get extremely mad, berate them, and then walk away from the situation. While Clayton struggled with personal relationships outside of his rugby teammates, he found himself setting extremely high standards for himself academically and coming down hard on himself if he made any mistakes that resulted in less than perfect marks on his exams. And so this is all I could find about Clayton's childhood, and a lot of this was a single article that kind of went back to his school-age days. And what we're seeing here is... The making of a of an extremely narcissistic personality he was described as this extremely intelligent kid he was reading well beyond his years reading very difficult books understanding very difficult concepts so intellectually his ability to comprehend and understand things were well above his peers but 
whether it be the bedwetting, the eyesight issues, uh, some of these other issues, he seemed to have some a lot of issues socializing with his peers. Now, it did say that he got along great with his rugby teammates, but again, it was more along the lines of they were a very successful rugby team. He had bragged, I believe, that they scored something like 1,500 points to their opponent's 96 points or something along those lines. And it was a pretty ridiculous domination of, of what he claimed his career points were with, with this team. But outside of that extremely athletic, driven, competitive side on the on the sports field, which is often looked past. I mean, there are a lot of egotistical, narcissistic, top-notch athletes. I mean, you talk about in the National Football League, best wide receivers are often called divas because they've got this personality to them that they are the best. And as long as they stay on top of that pedestal of being the best in the league, they get away with certain behaviors. There's guys that have been considered quote-unquote cancers in locker rooms, but they got away with it because they were putting up ridiculous numbers on the football field, and so their teammates tolerated it, their coaches tolerated it, the fans to a certain degree tolerated this behavior because it was producing results on the field. So in the sports world, those egotistical, narcissistic personalities are often almost rewarded to a certain degree. Whereas in your typical school life, in the academic life, it's much more about how you socialize with your peers, how you can kind of fit in to a certain degree. And if you're extremely intelligent, sometimes that's hard to fit in. But it definitely seemed like not only was he having difficult just fitting in because of his academics, he was getting teased and he wasn't responding to this teasing with, you know, lighthearted, uh, just joke. I mean, there are a lot of people who have this narcissistic personality. They are the type of people that the the phrase is they can give it, but they can't take it. And they'll make fun of everybody else for all of their shortcomings. But the second you try to make fun of them for anything, they get extremely upset. They they storm off. They, they swear. Whatever it might be, they just don't handle it well. And that's, that's how Clayton's classmates saw him. And this is not going to go well as he goes through life because any time that he is faced with adversity or change or something he can't control, it's a combination of becoming extremely emotional to the point of eventually violence. So what we're seeing as a child, his behavior, his inability to handle these situations, it's just a precursor to what we're going to see down the road. So I thought that was why it was important we cover what he was like in high school, what how people saw him, because he's going to go off to college and now college is a little bit different. It's an academic world to a certain degree like the sports field. There are people who stick out amongst their academic field and if they're extremely intelligent and extremely driven and bring accolades per se to the university, sometimes some of their side behaviors, people are willing to look away from that. So high school he gets through it he graduates and he goes off to university and this is where he's gonna be able to use that intelligence to put himself above and beyond everybody else but he's also going to continue to put these high standards on himself 
This self-imposed academic gauntlet continued into his beginning years of college, where he was known to pull out of a class if he was going to receive anything less than a grade of A+. Clayton did achieve a lot of A-plus grades, but it took him a considerable amount of time to get through uni as a result. So I don't know how this works in most colleges today. I was pretty shocked by this, that there was no penalty for him to pull out of a class if he knew he was going to get less than an A-plus, which even in the colleges I attended, I'm 99% sure there was no such thing as an A-plus in college. You, you just got an A if you got higher than whatever it was 90% on your exams and your papers and that kind of stuff. So to me, it was kind of shock because he was likely going to get an A on most of his exams and his papers. If he knew it wasn't going to be an A+, he would completely withdraw from that class and then take it again the next semester so that he could get that A+. And he continued to do this throughout his undergraduate years, which resulted in him taking six or seven years to graduate and... You know, he's going to get this impressive record of all these A-plus grades, but he's also likely only taking, at this point, a couple classes a semester then in order to achieve this. So it's more of a, would you rather graduate in four years with a bunch of A's and an A-plus, or would you rather take six years so that you have all A-pluses? And in 1998, at 22 years old, Clayton visited a doctor to discuss the anxiety he was having over his studies and the fact that his college girlfriend was moving to Auckland. He was prescribed Prozac to help battle his anxiety, and he decided to stay in Dunedin and focus on his studies. So again, he's 22 years old in 1998. He's been in college for four years at this point. Most people would be graduating. It was actually the summer that he should have probably graduated after his senior year of college, but because he had withdrawn from all these classes... He's 22 years old. His girlfriend, who had taken classes the normal way, she had graduated after four years, and she was moving to Auckland for a job. And so the combination of her moving away and his self-imposition of these really high grade standards created a lot of anxiety for a guy that was already filled with anxiety. And so he goes to see this doctor, and he gets prescribed Prozac to help him deal with the anxiety. And in 2002, he received the only non-A-plus grade on his transcripts, which was an A, for a dissertation he wrote on economics. After receiving the non-A-plus grade, he admitted that he cried to the professor about how he felt the paper was actually his best work and the grade did not reflect his efforts. And when I was in college, I remember one of my classes, the professor flat out came out and said, if you do well in this class you're going to get a C. He considered a C a passing grade and and he was going to grade on a bell curve meaning the majority of the class were going to get C's and then a certain percentage were going to get B's and A's and a certain percentage were going to fail the class. And while I didn't agree with his grading at all it wasn't something I could choose and to be able to get all of these A pluses I, I don't know if he convinced his other professors to change his grades to A pluses or if he somehow just wowed his other professors enough to get this A plus but I guarantee there's going to be a professor or two that refuses to give out A plus grades and if you do well in the class you get an A that's that's the grade that you get and that's the highest grade you can get so for most of us if you were taking a college class and you knew you were going to get an A in it that was that was great. That was, some people might expect that out of themselves, but 
other people would think it was the greatest thing ever whereas he's literally breaking down and crying and meeting with the professor and pleading with him to change this grade to an a plus because it's his only non-a plus on his transcript and then despite this a grade he continues on with the studies and achieves a graduate degree and started working for the treasury department but he ended up contracting glandular fever that he had struggles getting over so he left the full-time work and decided to pursue a life in academia by getting a phd and eventually becoming a professor so in 2004 he started dating a woman who would later testify in clayton's trial that the most difficult part of being with clayton was dealing with his mood swings she said that sometimes he could be the nicest most supportive guy and other times he was mean condescending and eventually he became physically violent towards her she told the court that in 2006, Clayton attacked her by kicking her and throwing himself on top of her. The woman sustained a bloody nose and felt that Clayton could have killed her during the attack, but she was able to calm him down and broke up with him shortly after the violent incident. The two did remain friends and stayed in touch, but when she accidentally sent Clayton a text message meant for her new boyfriend, Clayton lost control and began screaming at her and said he was disgusted with her. The cycle of abuse was complete when Clayton showed up in the woman's office crying and asking for forgiveness. The woman stated they could remain friends and the following year, in 2007, Clayton started dating Sophie Elliott. Sophie was a graduate student in the economics department at the same school where Clayton was pursuing his PhD in economics. And Clayton had purchased an apartment and was allowing other economics students to live with them. And people saw his behavior during that summer as polarizing. Some saw Clayton as a nice guy who offered people a place to stay and seemed to enjoy helping others in need, but other people described Clayton as being obsessed with being the king of his castle and wanted to feel like he had power over other people. And a lot of the times these narcissistic people are quite polarizing. There's some people who, whether it be that they only see them out in public or maybe they only see them in social settings where they are kind of riding a high of being around others they may view this person as he's a nice guy he lets other people live in his apartment rent free so that they can do their studies uh, he's hosting all these parties for them so that they can get to know each other and have a good time but then there's other people and whether it's because they're really close to him or whether they see him during one of his violent temper swings or, or something along those lines they're going to describe him as being this narcissist that has to be king of the castle that the reason he allows people to live with them is so that he has a position of authority over them that everything that he does that is nice is really secretly a way for him to flex his financial power flex his social power over these other people and basically build a kingdom of minions that either owe him favors or that he feels like he can boss around or tell them what to do. And so again, it's it's gonna be very polarizing. Some people, again, maybe it's depending on how far away you are on the outside, just looking in, you hear about this guy that just lets graduate students stay at his place rent-free because he's a super nice guy and he just gets along with everyone. Or maybe you're one of those students that lives there and you see one of his violent mood changes or you, you know, have him come down on you for something you get one of these condescending violent outbursts from him and you suddenly realize that what he's doing is not out of the kindness of his heart it's done out of a ulterior motive and clayton finished up his phd in late 2007 and was awarded the title of doctor of economics just before christmas unbeknownst to most he had started taking more and more prozac and had lost interest in most activities in his life 
and this is one of the side effects of Prozac, is you can lose a lot of interest. And a lot of times it's you lose interest sexually you lose interest in physical stuff it it was said that clayton really liked to work out and in the months leading up to this incident he had stopped working out and a lot of people believe he was under a lot of stress submitting his final phd paperwork and getting that all together so he started taking more and more prozac one of the side effects of prozac are these mood swings so as he's taking more and more prozac and he's under more and more stress and he's trying to lower his anxiety. He's likely experiencing more of the side effects of the Prozac to include said some, some really crazy mood swings. And this is going to create this dark side of his life. And Sophie's going to see it and she chronicles it when she wrote on December 27th, 2007 that Clayton had attacked her. And she decided to break up with him before her move to Wellington. She stated that Clayton threw himself upon her and shoved his forearm into her throat and held his hand over her mouth so no one could hear her scream. He told her that she was a horrible person, that she was ugly, and that he never liked her. He later told her that he had wished that a plane she'd been on a few months prior had crashed so she would be dead and out of his life. And and to provide some context for this, remember, the first time he went to see a doctor about his anxiety and, and his issues was when his college girlfriend was going to move away to Auckland. So this is a violent attack on Sophie after she has broken up with Clayton and she's moving to Wellington to start her new life. And so what we've seen, whenever Clayton has to deal with a major change in his life, especially something he's not controlling, and in this case it's a breakup, and her moving away from him, he doesn't respond to that well. And obviously because we're talking about it, it's it's only going to get worse. But it's not as if everything was happy-go-lucky for these two and then Clayton decided to kill Sophie it's this build-up of stuff in his life to Sophie leaving him and him increasing his Prozac and ultimately then he's going to make this decision to to attack her so in the week leading up to the murder Clayton took every chance he could to complain about Sophie and belittle her during conversations with his friends It was clear to many of them that he was obsessed with her and he wasn't handling the breakup or her impending move very well. And we do see this. He is constantly thinking about Sophie. He is literally obsessed with her to the point that friends don't want him to talk about Sophie anymore. And all he does is belittle her, complain about her. And a lot of the times the psychology of that is he can't get her off of his mind. So he's going to say all this discouraging stuff about her whether or not he actually believes it, the, the, uh, but the friends just can recognize the fact that they won't, that he won't let this go, that he won't talk about anything else, that she is constantly on his mind. On January 9th, 2007 was Clayton's 31st birthday, and he told friends that he wanted to spend the evening with them at some bars and do some karaoke. One of his friends asked if he had spoken with Sophie, and Clayton simply said no. But computer forensics would later show that on the day of his birthday and the day of Sophie's murder, Clayton went onto Facebook from his office computer at 1137 to look at photos of Sophie. It was at this point that the two very different stories would be presented during the murder trial. There was no question that Clayton killed Sophie. The murder occurred in a locked room with only the suspect and the victim inside. Leslie, Sophie's mother, came into the room to see Clayton continuing to stab Sophie long after she had lost her life. And I actually read this two different ways. One is that Leslie never got into the room, that it was a New Zealand police officer that forced his way into the room and came across 
Clayton stabbing Sophie, and the other article said it was Leslie who found or who made it into the room and found Clayton killing Sophie. Either way, there's no contest to the to the idea that it was Clayton who killed Sophie. He's seen doing it by either Leslie or this police officer. These are the only two people in a locked room. It's it's the most non whodunit case. So it's not going to be about who did it. it. The question at this point is going to be why was it done? So Clayton's defense team decided to use a law put into effect in New Zealand in 1961 to try and mitigate Clayton's possible punishment. Back in 1961, lawmakers recognized the need to give victims of chronic abuse a way to escape a murder conviction if they killed their abuser. The law allowed for victims of abuse to be convicted of manslaughter in cases where they attacked and killed their abuser after establishing the abuse had provoked them to do so. And this is different than self-defense. If an abuser was coming after someone with a knife and they shot and killed them, that's self-defense. They're facing a lethal threat. It's not murder. It's a justifiable homicide. What happened back in the 1960s, I think there's a, or maybe it was the late 50s, there was a woman who was constantly getting beat up by her significant other to the point that she thought she was going to be killed during one of his attacks. She waited until he was sleeping, and then I don't know if she stabbed him or shot and killed him, but she, she made the decision when she wasn't facing a lethal threat at that moment to kill her significant other. And in the United States, it's referred to as the battered spouse syndrome or the uh, abused lover syndrome where somebody's finally had enough they can't get abused anymore without fearing like their life is in danger and they make a decision during a non-lethal threat to take that other person's life now the way i read the law back in 1961 how it was originally written it mentions capital murder so my guess is back in 1961 new zealand had uh, the death penalty and that if you decided to go kill someone like this woman did her abusive husband under the law prior to 1961 you were committing a first degree premeditated murder which was a capital murder which means you could be put to death for taking the life of another that was abusing you so the lawmakers back in 1961 saw the uh, the writing on the wall and said this isn't what we want we don't want to put abuse victims to death for committing this crime now they need to be charged with a crime because what they're doing is still wrong but they shouldn't be facing the death penalty for it so they wrote this provocation law in 1961 that allows those types of crimes if you can prove there's abuse and provocation to be dropped down to manslaughter takes off the death penalty much lower uh, criminal penalty if you're convicted and so it kind of appeased both sides it appeased the side that said that abuse is wrong and this type of abuse will eventually kill this woman so she has a right to kill him but it also appeased the people that said you can't just run around and say and kill anybody you want and then say that you're abused so you had kind of this middle ground through this law now clayton's lawyers are going to try to claim that sophie had been verbally abusing clayton and that on the day of the murder while he was trying to return some items to her before the move she attacked him with the scissors and he pulled out the kitchen knife he carried for self-defense and ended up stabbing and killing sophie so they're going to use this try to use this provocation law to say hey clayton just went over there on his own accord to return some stuff sophie was the one that was abusing him verbally and then she tried to attack him and all he did was defend himself now that actually reaches the realm of self-defense they went a little bit further than 
what they needed to for the provocation, how the law was written. But unfortunately, the law was written so vaguely to cover so many different potential situations that if it was true, there was a chance that Clayton could be found guilty of manslaughter instead of a first-degree premeditated murder if he could convince the jury what he was telling them is what actually happened. However, the prosecution is going to argue that Clayton premeditated the entire murder, bringing the murder weapon to the house, locking the door behind him after entering the bedroom, and then attacking Sophie because she had broken up with him and she was moving away. And to further prove their point, the prosecution introduced evidence that showed Clayton stabbed Sophie 216 times, with most of the attacks focused on her genitals, chest, and face. Psychologists would testify this amounted to both overkill and sexual and physical attraction-based rage and did not align with the idea that the stabbings were part of self-defense or provocation. So it's not just the fact that there's a clearly established motive here for Clayton to kill Sophie. It's the manner in which the homicide was carried out, and I specifically didn't want to talk about the amount of stab wounds and the location he stabbed wounds until now. Because I, I think if you hear that earlier on, you immediately dismiss any idea that this is anything other than just a rage-based overkill murder. But once you see this evidence, and once you hear about 216 stab wounds, that's not somebody who just got provoked by somebody and then, you know, in an act of self-defense, stabbed this person a few times to end that threat. This this is somebody who had significant rage, had a a psychological need to cause this person both severe harm and mutilation and that psychologically they needed to do severe damage to this person because likely Clayton felt that Sophie damaged him by just simply breaking up with him and then the fact that she was going to move away. So everything we see from the crime scene indicates that this is not a crime of self-defense or a response to a provocation this was a obsession slash rage-filled crime that was carried out in order to fulfill a psychological need on clayton's part however psychologists for the defense try to offer up further mitigation by stating that clayton suffered from narcissistic personality disorder which contributed to his actions I don't think anybody would argue the fact that Clayton was severely narcissistic and might even have this narcissistic personality disorder. And basically, the disorder states that somebody who has an extremely high self-image, has high standards for themselves, and basically if the world has to revolve around this person in their mind and everybody else should revolve around them as well, you've got this narcissistic personality disorder and the psychologist is trying to say, because of this disorder, he just lost it in the fact that Sophie broke up with him and he couldn't understand why she wouldn't want to be with this guy who is so amazing and so desirable and, and everything. And while I don't discredit the fact that these thoughts are probably going through his mind, I don't think the jury or anybody that hears this story feels that Clayton still didn't know what he was doing, still didn't know that what he was doing was wrong just because he has this personality disorder. So I think even though it was brought up, again, it was a Hail Mary situation from the defense. They they can't argue the fact that Clayton killed Sophie. All they're trying to do is show that Clayton couldn't control himself and he wasn't acting of right mind at the time that he killed her, 
but everything is actually lining up with the fact that Clayton killed her out of this deep psychological need to cause her harm and that's going to fit a murder not oh, these defenses they're trying to bring up and the public of New Zealand already upset about the brutal and senseless murder in their safe country became enraged about the use of a law meant to protect those who suffer from abuse they saw the pervasion of the law as unacceptable and friends and family of Sophie were outspoken about the move by the defense and after a five-week trial Clayton's fate went to the jury and on July 22, 2008, they returned a verdict of guilty of murder. Later that year, the judge in the trial sentenced Clayton to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole after 18 years. Clayton's lawyers filed an immediate appeal, and the following year, the case was brought before the Court of Appeals to determine mainly if Clayton had received a fair trial. The murder had captivated the nation, and his defense team argued that the media exposure resulted in Clayton being found guilty by a lynch mob. The appeals court took two years to review the case, and in 2011, they denied all seven parts of the appeal, confirming the conviction. Clayton's last chance was an appeal to the Supreme Court, but they opted to not review the case, and so as of now, Clayton will be behind bars. However, he's eligible for parole in 2026. And this always comes up on these really high-profile cases. If the media gets involved and is blasting the public with every little tidbit of information about the crime about the trial the defense will always argue that their client is not able to get a fair trial most westernized countries have the innocent until proven guilty approach to uh, justice and a lot of these defense lawyers will argue that a lot of people are found guilty in the court of public opinion before they ever step in a courtroom and as a result the jury is already tainted however in a case like this Again, it's not even a who done it. It's just a why was it done. It's very difficult to ascertain how much a media influence is actually going to change the outcome of that trial. Now, I agree if you have somebody with all circumstantial evidence, a very weak case, but it's blasted throughout the news media that there may be jury members that see that evidence differently especially especially because circumstantial evidence can be subjective that if that person comes in with a preconceived notion that they're going to serve on the jury and they're going to find this person guilty yes that is not a fair trial but if there's evidence presented during the trial that is very clear that a crime was committed and the elements of the crime are met it doesn't matter how much media influence there is before the trial it's, the end result of that trial is going to be the same as if there was no media coverage or a ton of media coverage the evidence presented in the courtroom is enough so i think especially in a case like this where you have very solid evidence most of those types of appeals for the, the not the fair trial the overexposure of the media all of that stuff is not going to go anywhere when it goes to appeals just like it didn't in this case now the outrage over the misuse of the provocation law that allowed clayton to try and obtain a manslaughter conviction led to the repeal of the law in 2009 while many applauded this move as a way to prevent others like clayton from using it as a defense advocates for the law saw a key defense for abuse victims being taken away although the last 14 years have seen many people calling for a more definitive provocation defense law I could not find any evidence of a law, such a law being passed. So that was really the plus and minus of the outcome of this case, is they were able to get rid of this law on the books that made it so that murderers could try to wiggle out of their murder conviction. But at the same time, 
there still needed to be a reason for this law to be on the books. Now, New Zealand no longer has the death penalty, so maybe that's part of it, is that if somebody kills somebody else and they're facing a potential murder conviction as a, as a result of it, they'll let the the jury decide if they feel like this was a first-degree premeditated murder or whether that person can be found guilty of a lesser crime. So maybe there's been changes within the legal system itself since 1961 that mean that this law really doesn't need to exist anymore or they're just worried that no matter how they word another provocation law it's going to be misused and they don't want to go down that road so again i couldn't find anything for any type of new law since 2009 that works the way the 1961 law was supposed to work but ultimately at least at this point it seems like if you kill somebody else in new zealand you're going to face a murder conviction and you're not going to be able to use any mitigating circumstances other than probably self-defense to to try to get out of that murder conviction, at least not using the provocation defense. And Sophie's murder sparked many of the same responses in New Zealand that we are now seeing as a result of the murders of Gabby Petito and Emma Walker. Sophie's mother started a foundation in her daughter's name, and they succeeded in the development and implementation of a one-day workshop for high school seniors named Loves Me Not. The one-day workshop is geared toward educating young adults on both healthy and unhealthy relationships. This workshop is similar to some of the goals of the Gabby Petito Foundation and their partners. And so I just, I had actually picked this episode because it was the 120th, meaning we were going to do an international episode and I have a lot of New Zealand listeners. I didn't realize when I picked it that it was going to be so close to the last three episodes that I've recorded, which were Emma Walker's and then Gabby, both of Gabby's uh, episodes. And so now I'm, I'm kind of on a roll of four episodes here where we've talked about violence committed against a a female loved one by their uh, significant other as a result of toxicity within a relationship. In Emma Walker's case, her boyfriend shot into her bedroom trying to scare her and ended up killing her. Obviously in Gabby's case, Brian strangled her to end her life. And in this case, we have Clayton killing Sophie because Sophie had broken up with him and was going to move away. So there's plenty of cases out there that show how these toxic relationships, these unhealthy relationships are so dangerous to these women. But this is the first time in the, covering this out of New Zealand that I'm seeing any real social response to it. And I definitely, I wish I knew if they had some statistics out there, I couldn't find any that show a, a decrease in domestic violence or domestic homicides as a result of this workshop. But I have to imagine that that this has made some difference at some level, allowing people to see to recognize the early signs of dangerous relationships and allowing them to get out of these relationships before they're extremely toxic, before they're extremely dangerous. And Sophie Elliott was a gifted and bright woman who was on the cusp of entering the world as a well-educated and driven 22-year-old. Her life was taken by a cruel, selfish, and inhuman act committed by a man who thought so highly of himself that he could not stand the idea that Sophie did not want to be with him. His complete lack of control during the murder should be proof to any parole board that this monster should never see the outside world again. And that's important here. He got life in prison, but he's eligible for parole after 18 years. Now, I went back to his arrest in 2009. So actually, it's very early 2009, so it actually would be early 2027. He'd be eligible for parole, so about three years from this 
January, I would assume, if uh, assuming that he was held in custody from the time of arrest. But just because somebody's eligible for parole doesn't mean they're necessarily going to get out. They're going to look at a lot of different things about what has life been like for him in prison. Has he been a model prisoner? Has he been getting in fights? Has he been causing problems? Do they think he's rehabilitated? And I think what I'm trying to say here is that based upon the act that he carried out against another person, someone that he supposedly loved, I don't know how any amount of rehabilitation that would ensure to me that if he was involved in another relationship and it went south somehow that he wouldn't fall into that same trap of committing an extremely violent or lethal act on somebody else so to me unless as a parole board member you can 100 percent convince me that that person isn't a danger to anybody outside of prison I'm, I'm hoping that they elect to keep him in prison for the rest of his life and while Sophie's mom's health has required her to shut down the foundation, the New Zealand police are steadfast in their goal to educate young people about the dangers of toxic relationships. And as I mentioned before, I don't have any record of this, but I am sure that many women have avoided abuse and possibly even serious harm or death as a result of the one-day workshop. The world is a scary place in which monsters can exist, even in the safest places, but we remember the amazing woman Sophie Elliott and hope that her tragic death can continue to provide education and hope for future generations. And that's really what it comes down to is we may not immediately have an effect through these workshops. And again, this is something that I hope the Gabby Petito Foundation and her partners can do is start getting into schools and start educating young people, both men and women, about what is a healthy relationship and what is a unhealthy relationship. And it may take a couple generations. It may take people not seeing the unhealthy relationship their parents are in, that their friends and, and other family members are in, in order for them to recognize what is healthy and try to pursue those healthy relationships and avoid those unhealthy ones. And maybe in a few generations, we will have a much better base of healthy relationships for people to model their relationships off of instead of these unhealthy ones. But we can only hope. But that is the story of Sophie Elliott. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.